You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 246. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Anniko Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, Sanesan! How are you guys? Not bad, not bad. Thank you good, very much. Good. Yourselves? Not bad, considering. Considering, yeah. <laughs> well, yep. yeah, I'm afraid that that day yeah. that a lot of us in the skeptic movement feared came last week. And, and uh, when we learned that, that James the Amazing Randy has made his final escape. I don't remember who that who who said that, but I think it was the best way to explain how what happened. I think it was Aaron Segev who said Aaron Segev, but yeah, yeah he probably, probably yeah. made his final breakout from the from the coffin and, and he yeah. got yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that know. was that was so nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and but the problem is that this time he's gone forever, at least in flesh. Uh, yeah. But definitely not in spirit, if you forgive m- me saying that in a skeptical circle. <laughs> well, not not any supernatural spirit, but we will remember yeah, him. Yeah, that's right. And we yes, were very yeah, lucky definitely. to have met him. And he was a fantastic guy. Even it was this three years ago when we met in uh, Poland. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, he's so generous with his time. I know I approached him a little bit. We had interviewed him, but that had been over Skype a couple of years earlier. So I didn't know if he knew who I was. I went up and said, I'm sorry, can I introduce myself? And then and then he, you know, really shown up and said, yeah, yeah, I remember this. And then he proceeded to make... Uh, uh, magic tricks just for me in the corner there in the in the r- yeah. <laughs> room that we were and it, w- it was great and he was so yeah. uh, s- such a warm-hearted uh, guy yeah and i have to say like a lot of people when the news broke were like oh is is he really dead was that is that officially like do we have a source people were really skeptical about this and yeah. um <laughs> a, a german skeptic uh, florian eigner totally picked uh, up on that and said like I'm pretty sure James Randi would have liked them, like people being skeptical about his death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that's like very, like that shows how how much he actually, like how much of an impact yeah. he had. Yeah, I was I was among those guys and I started digging. <laughs> and uh, I, at, the, at that moment, I couldn't really find sources online because then um, JRF uh, had not put up the, the info just yet. Yeah. So I started asking around at the EXO panel mm-hmm. that, guys, do you know about this? Do you have it confirmed or, or something like that? Yeah. So I think he, he would have uh, approved of, of that approach, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I met him on two separate occasions. I mean, the first time that I saw him in person was in 2010 when the second Tem London was on. Mm-hmm. And on the first, he could not uh, not be there. But uh, at the second, he could be. But he was very frail. But I remember meeting him then. I had a little little chat with him as well. That was the first time I could, I could, I could shave his hand. And for me, it will probably sound silly, but it was a little bit of a s- spiritual experience. Not because I had that kind of attitude towards him like not i i didn't never considered him like a godlike fi- figure or a guru or anything but me on my journey as a skeptic basically oh he had a lot to do with that there is this um science journal in hungary that is called the world of nature termiset vilaga and they have been running um student essay competition for like decades and in the 90s right after having visited hungary and kickstarting basically the Hungarian skeptic movement by then that visit. Right after that, he offered a skeptical prize on that student essay competition. I was the third person to get that prize. Mm. So cool. <laughs> and back then I was 17 years old. Right. <laughs> and that's how I really started on my journey as a skeptic. Yeah. So the first time I could I could actually thank him in person for that and shake his hand oh my god that was that was an absolutely amazing experience and then uh, after the the european skeptics congress in 2017 i followed him with <laughs> susan gerbic to cesena in italy yeah and <laughs> with permission we should say you didn't stalk of him. course of course no 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 but we were joking the skeptic stalkers so <laughs> randy randy susan and i kept joking about it 
that uh, how we were like stalkers and <laughs> just following him <laughs> everywhere uh, across Europe. And he was so lovely and so nice about the whole thing, about everything. And he was so generous with his time. You remember Pontus when we we did the interview with him yes. for the ESP, right? How much we laughed! Yes, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was uh, it was really great, and uh, it's still there. Yeah, if you want to go out and listen to it again, yeah, I can't on the top of my head say episode sixteen. Sixteen, yes, it was yeah. early on, so mm-hmm. episode sixteen. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, don't don't listen to anything else but the interview. <laughs> 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 By the way, if you are there and you recommend others. To pick up listening to the ESP, please tell them not to start from the beginning or only listen to the interviews from the beginning. Because uh, first of all, at the beginning, there were a couple of things that we we were not very good at. I'm not saying that we're so perfect right now, (laughs) but we've had to learn a couple of things. Yeah, it's a bit cringeworthy. Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing to mention is that a lot of the content back then was about up-to-date information about events and what's what's coming to town what's coming to this town and that town so it will definitely not be interesting for for a newcomer let's say we were a bit naive and thought that people would listen to the episode the same day that it came out which (laughs) people don't we realize (laughs) that now so going through tomorrow this and this is going to happen well that doesn't <laughs> that's not very interesting if you listen two weeks later yeah unless you're like a skeptical chronologist then of course you can listen to the the older episodes but then under the pretense of writing it down in chronology for a chronic of the esp <laughs> yeah but oh no, wow yeah but the skeptical <laughs> calendar is still out there and we still update it there's not so much there now because most of the things are online but we put even online things in there but so it is kept for posterity you can we don't delete anything from the calendar you can go back and look at what happened in uh, april of 2016 if you want to yeah who knows you might be able to to pick up a couple of ideas here and there yeah right yeah but andras isn't exo also doing um something else to remember randy yes and i find it so lovely i mean all the love and admiration that people people all over the world expressed upon learning about his death is absolutely heartwarming and the exo website featured a, a lovely tribute as well we had a little bit of discussion as to how to pay him a tribute. And what we came up with was that everyone can send in uh, their own stories uh, uh, with a picture and a few words of remembrance, and that will be posted. And I think we are still open for that. So if someone from Europe wants to share their experience of meeting Randy or how uh, Randy influenced them in their skeptical activities... Uh, feel free to send it to uh, to us. I think info at exo.org is is something that is available. But if not, info at the ESP.eu is definitely there and we can pa- pass the information on. Yeah, that works just as well. Um, and before we uh, leave uh, the topic of James Randi, I saw that just uh, a few hours ago as we record this, Richard Saunders posted the documentary called James Randi in Australia in higher definition than ever before on YouTube. It's a lovely documentary about how James Randi went to Australia Mm. and uh, we will put the link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if anyone out there has any recording that uh, could be released or could be shared with others from different um, different countries all over Europe. Uh, we would very much appreciate that. Uh, we are currently in the process of trying to acquire the original recording of Randy's appearance in the planetarium of Budapest here in Hungary, huh. where he performed this fake surgery as well. Uh, that was really cool. And there was a professional video taken of that but it somehow got lost, so we are chasing it right now. <laughs> but that would be so cool. And the, the other thing is that all over Europe, there are organizations, skeptical organizations, that can actually trace their origins back to Randy's appearance or their connection with Randy. And that is such a huge influence. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the Australian skeptics, again, they were very much inspired by his visit yeah. to Australia. I think it was in 1980 he was there. And two years later or so, they, they, they formed the first organization. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. yeah, it's it's impressive and and interesting how how much of an impact somebody can have if he's as inspiring as Randy. <laughs> yeah, and why I really think this is important, and I'm currently writing up um, an article on my blog about that, is that it does matter how we choose our heroes. And Randy was like a beacon of light to so many, but but not in the spooky guru-like fashion that some cult leaders try to be. <laughs> So he, he was never a cult leader. He was always a guy who wanted to wanted everyone to question him and everyone. Uh, so it's what we feel towards him is more like the most sincere kind of respect, I think. And he set an example to follow yeah, for everyone. And, 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 and on that note, he also resented when people called him a debunker. Of things yes he said i'm not i'm not a debunker i'm i investigate with an open mind it's just that now after yes 34 or <laughs> 40 years or whatever it was when they interviewed him i still haven't found anything but if i do i will recognize it yeah mm. that's right all right so thank you very much to everyone for sharing this um their uh, their experience their uh, encounters with randy and please keep doing so. We will pass it on to Exo. And we just try to live up to that example that he set for all of us. Well, thankfully, we have a bit more time now to think about Randy um, because uh, daylight <laughs> savings started or ended, right? Ended, yes. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, ended. Yeah, it's like... Ugh. So how tired <laughs> are you guys? <laughs> or will it kick in tomorrow? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not. I'm quite used to that. I'm quite used to even more time delays jet lags and all that stuff so yeah no it's one hour it doesn't is not, affect is, me no yeah. that doesn't make a big difference for me either yeah I'm, I'm actually okay too um interestingly like the clock change can totally lead to to health outcomes like not only fatigue or being um irritable but also um strokes and heart attacks are actually higher are you okay during the first week <laughs> i'm worried now. i'm okay <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> no, but like hmm. there's even empirical data that uh, there's a 6% increase in fatal car crashes during the time of clock changes, like in, in spring and in autumn. Wow. And and it's uh, it's totally down to like our biological clock. <laughs> mm -hmm. And because of that, I thought I would provide our listeners with, with a few tips to um, help you with, uh, yeah, to better adjust. Good. Yeah, that is keep a regular sleeping pattern. That's like easier said than done, as we all know. <laughs> and to change your sleeping schedule gradually by 10 minutes earlier per day and not doing it like one hour then because then you will get confused. It's important to get sunlight in the morning if you can, if you're not like... It's almost November. Living somewhere where you don't have sunlight in the morning. <laughs> yeah, try to say that to Pontus. <laughs> yeah, I thought it the same second I, I said it. Um, <laughs> you should avoid bright light in the evening, uh, like a computer screen. So we're all doing a very good job in that. And, um, <laughs> and you should keep your eating patterns regular. So pretty much everything is about uh, keeping everything regular and then your body can adjust really well yeah. and really quickly. Right. Yeah, and another thing that we could do is to get rid of the whole thing. Exactly. <laughs> yep. I must say, I had that idea already in secondary school uh, when I was like, like what, how old was I, 16 or something? I, re I wrote an essay about how stupid it was with um, this uh, summertime, wintertime thing because it was fairly new at the time. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And... Um, I, I, I think I got an E on that essay. <laughs> my, my, my teacher didn't like it at all. But that's fine. I didn't like her either. So. But at that time, mm -hmm. was there driving on the left still in Sweden? How old do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't. That was... I think, I think it was introduced in 69, wasn't it? Or 60-something. I think it was 67. 67, okay. Did you ever meet dinosaurs? Yeah, but I have one here, but he's not talking <laughs> much now. I think it was in 1967, but I didn't have a driver's license at the time, before you ask. I was three years old. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, I, I know. Yeah, but... yeah right. Uh, but the, the summertime thing was in the end of the 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. But I don't really mind that one hour difference. What I, I do mind is the confusion. So I think it hurts me more than than yeah. the actual one hour longer day or one hour shorter day. Yeah, because it's pretty much like flying to uh, the UK from here. 
Like that's pretty oh, yeah. much the difference. So exactly. <laughs> and I'm, as I said earlier, I'm much more used to like uh, flying over the Atlantic, and that means six hours difference. Yeah. And uh, coming back is a nine-hour difference. So it's uh, Com- coming back is harder. I mean, going going it is harder, going yeah. east is harder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially is, if you're is. in like a springtime Australia, and then you come back to autumn time Germany. <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> because then it's not just it's not just 12 hours or whatever it is. It's half a year. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, last year we did that with on the 21st of December. And that was pretty cool because we flew from the shortest day to the longest day. Wow. That was okay. pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> but don't go east. Go west. Right. Right. Always. Always. Go west. Go west. <laughs> always go west. <laughs> but thankfully, the, the earth is round, so you can go around. Is it round? <laughs> the other thing, well, which we should do a deep dive into some other time because we haven't done our research right, right now, is is there any point with daylight saving from economical or whatever point of view there are, I think there are strong indications that it doesn't do any good. It's all bad. But let's save that for a, re- a show where we have researched that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or next year when it, when it all becomes an issue again. <laughs> right. Talk about yeah, it yeah, let's do that. We have <laughs> six months to do the research or whatever. We can it is. invite yeah. a medical doctor and give, give us, then let them give us all the details yes yeah or an economist or someone (laughs) okay so moving on thank you very much let's talk about stuff that um, we usually have on our segments and our first segment as usual will be finding out what happened this week in skepticism this week on the 28th of october 312 (gasps) the battle of the milvian bridge happened Mm -hmm. so Wow. Two emperors, the Roman emperors Constantine I and Maxentius, fought um, about their claim to leadership. And so far, so good. You might just think, like, yeah, well, that's just another Roman conflict, right? <laughs> like, inner Roman conflict, whatever. It happened a lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There were a couple. <laughs> a few, yeah. <laughs> Dividing power was not their strong suit. Nah, like, especially not nah. in, in their empire's uh, time. But yeah. this Constantine apparently had a vision during the battle or even before the battle on the evening on the 27th of October to fight under the protection of the Christian God. And he marked his shield with a sign of Christ. It's not completely clear which ones, uh, which sign he used, if he used like a cross or like the shiro or it's not completely... A fish, maybe. <laughs> or a fish, like they don't, this is actually not completely uh, proven. Well, one thing is for sure that they very hastily drew yeah. anything that they drew yeah. on, on their... <laughs> yeah, it wasn't made out of metal or anything, like it, it was yeah, drawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And with this, and because he also won the the battle, the conversion to Christianity began in Europe. So, um, and we all know how well that went. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's like, um, what do you mean it began? Well, Constantine won and controlled the western half of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And in the following year, uh, Christianity was made an officially uh, recognized religion in the Roman Empire and tolerated. So that meant that uh, Christians, early Christians, weren't persecuted anymore. And they were even not, not only tolerated, but it was also like, hey, this is a religion that you can do. It was promoted as well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the Edict of Milan, that was a big thing Yeah. in 313. Yes, that uh, it was previously untolerated and then it became tolerated. But so much so that his mother, for example, Helena, she was a big believer and uh, probably much more than his son was. Yeah. She brought over a couple of things from the Holy Land, like parts of the cross, allegedly, and parts of the actual uh, steps that Christ was led up <laughs> in front of uh, Pilate. So who knows? <laughs> but- yeah, exactly. And I think this whole topic is um, a treasure chest of things to be skeptical about. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. For the like, on the one hand, we can surely be skeptical of the vision. It might have been for like um, out of pragmatic reasons, for example. <laughs> mm-hmm. More likely. Mm-hmm. But also, without this battle and without this 
so-called vision, um, most of medieval Europe would have happened differently. And mm -hmm. thus also like the, the rise of Christianity, but also the rise of the Enlightenment after and the, like, the renaissance of the modern and anti antique theories of reason, all, all of that would have happened differently. And without that, like, I'm pretty sure we also would live in, an, in another world. Yeah, no, definitely that, that changed a lot. But I want to say also, just as an aside, when Christianity suddenly became, well, not maybe not so suddenly as we are led to believe, but it became the, the approved religion, that actually was a big problem for Christianity because a lot of it was built around martyrdom and being persecuted and, and being, you know, the victim of things. And suddenly you were not only just not, no longer victims, you were the preferred religion. And a lot of uh, Christians at the time had a hard time dealing with that change. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's also like it was a big step for a lot of like religious people that weren't Christian too, like because it's a huge step to go from polytheistic or polytheism with gods that have like a character and that are not only like benign and, and happy <laughs> to like one god yeah. who seems to be a lot less human. <laughs> right. That's right. But, but the, the, there are other things about Constantine and one of them is uh, that uh, th there is a very common misconception about him that he made Christianity an official religion of the Roman Empire, which is not true. Yeah. He tolerated it, he used it for his political gain, and he himself got baptized. But uh, there is actually a lot of debate over whether he had Christian beliefs. Yeah. Uh, it was much more, more political for him. And there comes the other thing, that he was the one making the Pope Back then, it wasn't called the Pope. I think it was the 7th or the 8th century that the first Bishop of Rome was called the Pope. But the Bishop of Rome was not wealthy before Constantine. And Constantine acquired the land and the palace, the Domus, the Palace of Lateran, and he gave it to, to the Bishop of Rome. So that's where the whole thing about the church acquiring land and wealth started. So, Pontus, please say that you this week you have something to poke the Pope for. All right, so fast forward 1,700 years. <laughs> Only? <laughs> no biggie. And it's time for some pokey pokey. Uh, it's been a few weeks and um, since I poked the Pope, and this week I'll talk about a documentary that came out. It's called Francesco. And I think perhaps a lot of you have already heard about it and the sensational news in this documentary, uh, Francis is okay with civil unions for quote-unquote homosexuals. It's his words, not mine. And uh, it made a lot of waves throughout uh, international media. New York Times had it, the CNN, Guardian, all the big papers had big... Uh, Big headlines about uh, New York Times wrote in shift for church, Pope Francis voices support for same sex civil unions. That sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? But I am, as people might suspect, I am less impressed. <laughs> First of all, this is not news. He has said so many, many times before, even before he became the Pope. So the statement in many news outlets that this will create a juicy internal fracture within the church, that's nonsense. I'm, I'm sure there are cardinals and others, bishops, who deeply disagree with him uh, because they're even more bigoted than he is. But <laughs> all the cardinals that elected him as pope knew Francis' position on this uh, when they voted. Also, if we look at the substance... This is a very low bar to pass. Let, let, let's take a look exactly at what he said. And I will now quote His Holiness himself. <laughs> and he said, Homosexual people have a right to be in a family. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable over it. And then he said, What we have to create is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. End quote. Okay, so... Let's break this down a bit. So, first of all, we have the actual language. Quote-unquote, homosexual people. That sounds 
that he's describing an alien race, not not really human, right? <laughs> yeah. And then there's this deceptive mention of family. Gay couples do have every right to a family and to start a family, but that's not what he's saying. Yeah, he's saying like, don't kick them out of your. He's saying don't kick them out. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. parents should not kick their gay children out of the family. And that's not very progressive, is it? <laughs> yeah, you had to. You have to be a very horrible person if you if you don't agree with that. It should be quite basic. Don't kick out your children. Yeah, that, that's his message then. <laughs> and then he's only talking about a legal arrangement. Nothing about this holy matrimony stuff. That's reserved for others. So being joined in the eyes of God, that, that of course is nonsense as we atheists see it, but. It could be very, very important if you are a believer, but none of that is open for gay people. And then this is the real killer. You're still not allowed to do the naughty stuff. He has never condoned sex for same-sex partners. In fact, he has said uh, on other occasions that you can't help if you're born gay uh, or homosexual, as he puts it, but doing gay stuff, that is not allowed. That's still a sin. Is sexual intercourse between a woman and a man not a sin if it's not for the purpose of making babies? If it's within marriage, it's actually good, isn't it? Is it? <laughs> within marriage, uh, within marriage is fine. I, I, I don't okay. know. We can get into the whole contraceptive thing if you want to, but that's another story. But but that's a very but you bring up a very good point because what you're pointing at is that if you're married, I mean holy matrimony and all that stuff then sex is okay civil union not so much right ah, okay yeah so that's another mm -hmm. reason why you shouldn't do uh <laughs> what you really want to do <laughs> so um that's still a sin then again about this legal aspect there is no chance in hell uh, i mean <laughs> pardon the choice of words <laughs> that the vatican will ever have a civil union in their laws Why should they? It's a it's a country the size of a postage stamp, and and the only people who live there are cardinals and bishops and priests who are already they have already promised to be celibate. <laughs> so who there would ever admit to having a gay relationship? So this is very very safe for Francis to say to 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 score cheap points. He will now never have to implement a civil union for the Vatican and for the rest of the world. He can just you know say things and it's another it's their problem yeah so in short nothing has changed with this statements and nothing will change because of this mm. well when you put it like that exactly yeah and it's it's easy to fall for just uh, being in awe of how open-minded he is yeah but uh when you actually go deeper into the details then you realize that it's not that good as it looks no yeah <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we are moving on to discussing the news. And well, why don't we start with uh, COVID-19 updates that we haven't done in a while. So To get it out of the road. <laughs> yeah, get it out of our, our systems. There are a couple of things of development. So, um, But one thing is for sure. Some epidemiologists and statisticians don't necessarily like to to call them waves uh but no matter what we call it the second wave of covid-19 pandemic is here seems like and it. in terms of the spreading of the disease it seems to be worse than the first in the last week or so france and spain both joined russia in the league of european countries with a case count above a million This is not a contest you want to win. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You don't want to be there in that league. Yeah. Not because of Russia. It's because it's not cool. But the UK is well on their way to join the club, actually. But now, even previously unaffected countries uh, seem to be facing a surge of cases. So there are really very few countries that don't see that happening on their turf at the moment. We've already mentioned Germany. In Hungary, the situation is getting worse and worse by the day. Currently, Sweden is not doing that well either. So the case case counts are, are really uh, climbing up. So lockdowns and even curfews are being implemented mm. all over the place. And it doesn't look like it's going to end soon. But at least there seems to be a much lower case fatality rate all over the world. 
somewhere around 2.7% at the moment, which is not to say it's not a dangerous disease anymore, but having learned how to deal with it, how to take care of patients that are hospitalized, plus all the protective measures that aim at trying to avoid the disease seem to be working relatively well. This is still serious stuff, but we've grown better at preventing it or dealing with it when, when all else fails. So that's what it's all about. So I just want to make sure that no one runs out and says that, okay, because the case fatality rate has been lowered, then we're all out of the woods. No, we're not. Especially that miracle cures don't seem to be lurking in the shadows. And and even some treatments previously considered promising have, have now been proven not to work, or at least raised serious questions about their efficacy, like hydroxychloroquine, we all remember that. Mm-hmm. Now it's remdesivir that used to look like it's it was very promising, and now it looks like, well, well it doesn't really work. And now vitamin D is under much more scrutiny than it used to be, mm-hmm. because some concerns have been raised about that. Uh, there are some hurdles to vaccine development as well. A growing number of experts argue that an eradication of COVID is virtually impossible, even with the vaccine, especially with all the people uh, saying that they are probably not going to vaccinate themselves, mm-hmm. even if the jab will be available. So the situation is grim. But on the other side of things, pandemic fatigue has really become a thing, uh, with more and more people showing tendencies to fall out of the line and relapse after months of compliance, especially as the perceived severity of the disease is reduced due to the lower than previous death rates, as, as I mentioned earlier. But there are some rather unexpected negative consequences of people staying home and not being able to socialize for month on end as well. It looks like when it comes to personal habits, especially health-related ones, including dietary choices, physical activity or sleep cycles, there is an increasing amount of data that suggests that changes have been made mostly for the worse. So people are getting less healthy, because of the the lifestyle they've acquired in this situation. So the problem is that we should probably look for positive outcomes. But even when you try to think of a positive outcome of this lockdown situation, there is not much to be happy about. When a couple of months ago, a third of the global population was in lockdown, it all seemed like there was at least one thing that turns out for the better. And everyone thought it would significantly decrease global carbon dioxide levels and will have a cooling effect on Earth overall, right? We were so optimistic about that. Mm. Even uh, <laughs> We even mentioned that on the show and then mentioned it, the, the other side of it, that it actually not ha- did not happen or not as significant a change occurred as uh, we had previously uh, wanted it to be. So it didn't happen. Even though carbon dioxide emissions dropped a significant 17% from the same period last year, other factors balanced it out, like... There was a lack of aerosols in the atmosphere that usually are produced by heavy industry and reflect a large amount of heat coming from the sun back into space. So even though air quality increased as a result of lockdown, as black carbon levels also plummeted all over the planet, so air quality really increased, the balance was not all that good. The energy balance, the heat that came in and stayed in and left the system. At least we did not see the changes that we would expect. And if you put that next to the fact that some countries are really struggling to keep afloat, economically speaking, and how that all boils down to people actually losing their jobs and their livelihoods while people are dying from the disease or or just face long-term repercussions, even when the illness itself doesn't hit them that hard, it's really not looking good. So now more than ever, it is really important that fake news are cast out, conmen are exposed who try to exploit other people who are in a difficult situation and misinformation is being tackled. So let's see how well we're doing in that regard all over Europe. (laughs) You're you're saying it's still good to be skeptical. It is. (laughs) It is the only beneficial thing at the moment that I can think of. (laughs) Well, you know, the the wildfires in Siberia and California must have produced some aerosols, so that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the one yeah, and the ones in uh, California as well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, like half the planet on fire, that's not hurting for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. The other Jesus. half is is being just forests being burned down for uh, acquiring more land. Uh. So. <laughs> Which is totally different. Like it, the atmosphere recognizes that, and then it doesn't uh, change anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Thanks for bringing the mood up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and I've got a little. Um, I can chime in with a bit more COVID info there, because apparently there's not really no real evidence that uh, contact tracing apps for COVID are actually helpful against spreading. COVID. Do you guys have a contact tracing app? I, I have one and I do fill it in every day. And are you saying I shouldn't? Um, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> the, yeah, the problem is the download rates um, have been low around the world. Mm. And even if you download it, it doesn't mean that you use it like you, you do, Pontus. I do. And it's like, of course, the more people have it, the more it can be used at all. And to give you an idea, and for example, in Germany download rates have been pretty high and they were at about 20%, like roughly 20%. And that's high. <laughs> 20% of the population downloaded the app. Yeah. That, that's yeah. huge, actually. Yeah. That's pretty good. But to actually really change something, it would need to be higher. Yeah. That's the problem. We should say 20% of the population should download this show. That would do <laughs> a lot of good for the world. Yes. Yes, yes that's right. That's right. Definitely. Yeah. So for, for the contact tracing apps, wasn't it around five, 50 or 60% at least uh, for it to to actually work? Yeah, it, I think you can probably imagine something like herd immunity, uh, a metaphor there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's like yeah. the more people use it, the more it can actually like help. And yeah, you sure. need a higher number than 20%. 20% is like perfect, but it needs to be more to yeah, actually yeah, right. have an effect. And Yeah, it's like still a, like a hit and miss thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's yeah. very hard to, to aim for much higher than that. Yeah, exactly. And there, there have been like um, concerns by people. They, they didn't trust uh, the technology. Sometimes the technology had a few bugs in them because obviously these apps only have been written this year. <laughs> Mm. And some people also don't trust, like, uh, to, don't want to give out their Bluetooth or GPS information, which the apps usually use to contact trace. So they don't want to be the, like the citizen out of glass, as they would call it in Germany. Oh, okay. <laughs> ah. But at the same time, of course, people are using Facebook and Instagram. But okay, um, <laughs> let's not point at the irony here. Uh, just, just one thing that I, I'd like to mention here. Every time that this comes up, the issue of privacy and data privacy, I've always had this approach that as long as I don't have anything to hide... Is it really necessary for me to really hold on to things? <laughs> so why why am I scared of sharing my localization information? What's the problem with that? I mean, okay, I can imagine that if someone wants to stalk me, if someone wants to kidnap me or something, that could make it easier for them. But... It's not very realistic, is it? No, I think as long as I trust my government, um, I give this out uh, to the app. <laughs> I don't trust my government and I still say that. <laughs> and that's what I'm like, hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, but for, for very, that very purpose, you need to put up some rules and regulations about data management and data privacy. But when it comes to an application that is supposed to serve your health, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> well, it, it, well it, it depends. I think this is a very deep topic. Let's say that, you know, these contract tracing apps, if they follow you around and can tell exactly where you were and you spend the night with somebody who you shouldn't really spend the night with, <laughs> then, you know, yeah, there are, it's much, and that's just an example. But it's not how they work. So that's, that's the thing. Uh, uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure the, the authorities are doing a good enough job in explaining all that to the users. No. Yeah. As far as I know, the information you put in is like encrypted, so you can't easily get it out. And of course, there is a huge potential there. Like these apps could be really, really good, but there's still just a long way to go yep. from probably every individual that didn't download it yet, but also from uh, app developers and government and everyone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it all comes down to information, right? And I said earlier that now it's crucial that we all work towards a better dissemination of science, facts and reliable information. When it comes to misinformation, an inoculation against it is what we need, especially as we don't have an actual COVID-19 vaccine yet. So this is the reason why an unprecedented collaboration has been announced last week. The WHO, 
the World Health Organization, is teaming up with Wikipedia. The health agency puts much of their content out in Wikimedia Commons uh, so that it's available for free without further questions under the sole condition that whoever uses the content has to cite WHO as the origin of the content. And this is good on so many levels. First of all, it means that we uh, that well-researched expert information is readily available in the hope that, as digital content manager for WHO Andrew Pattison said, quote, getting good content out quickly disarms the misinformation, end quote. And this is an, in accordance with the inoculation theory that we've discussed several times on this show, even with experts of the field. So that's one. The other great advantage is that now everywhere, everyone is free to grab those infographics and pictures, make a translation of the whole thing, cite the WHO, and start spreading it in their own language right away. Don't, don't have to contact WHO don't, for, for permissions or anything. It's all there. It's all available. That gives us a massive opportunity for outreach. Some languages are included in the original works, including German and Portuguese. So that's good news for you, German people and Portuguese mm. people. You mm. don't have to do the actual work of translating stuff. But there are so many more that need work with these files. So jump right on, on this opportunity, people. Apparently, both Wikimedia Foundation and WHO leaders see this as a great step forward, something that can bring about the release of similar stuff about AIDS, Ebola, influenza, and polio, uh, the latter being targeted for complete eradication. So it's a very important issue. So good times. It's great seeing these giants work together. It's like the Avengers, <laughs> but it's much cooler. <laughs> no superhero <laughs> shit, uh, only science and facts. So, well done. Right. Very good. Speaking of the WHO, mm -hmm. this is uh, an anniversary now uh, for uh, the United Nations who started WHO. Mm -hmm. The United Nations turns uh, 75 years old wow. and you know you may say uh, the UN is problematic in some ways um, but it's still a very important institution and without it I believe the world would look very very different and be a much darker place agreed yeah so one of the things as I said that, that the United Nations have done is to uh, create the WHO it was formed a couple of years after the UN itself was formed and uh, WHO has achieved a lot of things that would have been absolutely impossible without it, especially regarding vaccinations. Mm -hmm. We all know and you, uh, about smallpox, how it was eradicated by efforts from the WHO. Yeah, only heard of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, right, yes. So, uh, and, and we're, they were almost... Well, it's been some years coming, but they are slowly achieving the same thing with polio. And we talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, Ebola outbreaks have been fought off by, by the WHO and other, other diseases, of course, like measles, even though uh, there's been uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, there have been a lot of measles outbreaks, but it would have been much, much worse if it hadn't been for the WHO. Uh, so there's been some failures, but but a lot of things that have been achieved couldn't have been done without them. So to digress a little bit, John Oliver recently talked about the WHO on the, his uh, This Week Tonight show. Mm, what a great show. Yeah, it's a great show. This episode was uh, mostly about the idiocy of Trump to announce that the US will withdraw from the organization, which they will do unless Biden wins the election next week. So you know where to what to vote for if you're eligible. <laughs> you know people what to do. And send uh, thoughts and prayers, right? Uh, yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, we, we will put a link to that, to the John Oliver show in the show notes if you haven't seen it. Uh, and I, I must say, I agree with almost everything that John Oliver says. He does talk about China's influence over the WHO, but there's one thing he fails to mention, something that we have brought up a couple of times. And uh, there is one legitimate problem with the link between China and the WHO, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Guys, there is. you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, 
traditional Chinese medicine. Traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, got an, its own chapter in the latest revision of whatever they call it, the, the not the handbook, but there's a, a big document that the WHO hands out about uh, classifications of diseases, etc., and also of cures. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is true that uh, the WHO has caved in for pressure uh, from China a couple of times, especially around TCM. But uh, nevertheless, the WHO as a whole and the United Nations as a whole is a good thing. And uh, it's been around for 75 years. And uh, I hope they will be around for at least as much in the future. Definitely. Yeah, I think uh, WHO... Has not been around for that long. No, it's a couple of years like a three, after. Three so, years later, yeah, I think it's uh, 48. Something like, yeah, 1948, was, uh, I think. 1948, yeah. the WHO, they'll three years later, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Happy birthday. I have to say, like, United Nations, and um, this is something that is so huge, and it's like a cooperation of yeah. so many human beings. It's like, it's really cool, like, how what we are able to do and what we're able to achieve when we actually want to work together. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, th- there was one thing that uh, John Oliver said on the show. I, I mean, uh, that was that was an amazing episode. But I, I did miss uh, from the show that that mention of the traditional Chinese medicine, actually. Yeah. But what was really surprising is that the budget, the overall budget of the WHO, e- equals to, I don't know which hospital he said a u.s hospital yeah. one hospital yeah. yeah one year of uh, budget for a u.s hospital that is just mind-blowing that the whole thing operates on that budget right yeah and uh i looked it up and it actually checks out so hmm. it really is ridiculously low for an international organization of that magnitude definitely yeah. and i've got a little update which also has to do marginally with medicine <laughs> but not not traditional chinese medicine not that now <laughs> good good because iris 100 mark who is the pharmacist who doesn't stock homeopathy in her pharmacy anymore yeah got like a her, big, right? yes yes mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and she got a big um newspaper article about her in the frankfurter allgemeine sonntagszeitung which is a popular german newspaper and yeah, as we talked about her before i thought it would be cool to just give you guys an update mm-hmm. so she doesn't stock any so-called alternative medicine, no homeopathy, no globulis, uh, also no special Schüssler salts. I don't know, even know if you know what that is. It's like a special uh-huh. kind of salt yep. or uh, Bach flowers, also sometimes uh, beach flowers, just like so-called natural remedies that are actually not working. So she doesn't st- stock anything that's bogus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Only evidence-based things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Okay. And that's good. this decision, of course, had consequences. Uh, she got invited to a lot of talk shows to discuss uh, that, but she also received um, death threats. Also, a marriage proposal. <laughs> that was me. Wow. I, I must admit. Yeah, yeah, that was all of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of us, yeah. <laughs> but also, funnily enough, she actually receives more customers now because people are like, hey, we want to support this lady because she's actually on the side of science great and are you, do you mean that like like uh, people who uh, who don't don't even belong to that area they go out of their ways to yeah. actually buy pharmaceutical products from her that's yeah, nice I, I would do that's that so too nice. i would do that too like if, if she wouldn't be yeah several hundred kilometers away from me i would i would do that yeah that would be a bit of a stretch wouldn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Just for some ibuprofen or so, you know, just driving if you now. But what, what, um, like we, we asked us before when we talked about her before, like how does she do that? Because she has to order the medicine if you really want it, just from the law side of things. And yes, she will order it if you really want to want it because she has to, but she never stocks it and she will tell you that, that it doesn't work. She will give you all the facts while ordering it for you. <laughs> so simple yeah wow and for most people that is like for most people that want homeopathy this is so inconvenient that they don't just don't go there because they are just like well she's not stocking it i would have to wait days for that so nah not going there anyways <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah for empty sugar pills yeah yeah and as far as like the the newspaper did a survey with other pharmacies and it seems that iris Mark is still the only pharmacist in Germany to have done that. So kudos to that. <laughs> 
Yeah, but let's hope that there will be others to follow. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. And this information and this precedence should be told to everyone all over Europe because they could do it even though they are required to be able to order it. Still, they could do the same thing. Yeah, I can order it for you, but why would you want it? Because it's it's it doesn't work. <laughs> so simple. Yeah, even just the inconvenience of ordering it, even if you don't talk about it, like even if you yeah. if you just say like I have yeah, to yeah. order it, I don't have it stocked. Yeah. Even that is already so inconvenient that people will go to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think uh, what pisses me off about this is the cynicism on uh, the the pharmacist side. That whatever it brings me income, it sells. So why why wouldn't I sell it? Good. Moving on to a different country from Germany. <laughs> uh, one of the Spanish skeptical organizations, ARP, SAPC, or the Association for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, uh, seems to have been very busy lately. They launched a Telegram channel. Are you familiar with a Telegram? Mostly, yeah. Yeah, I looked it up today because I saw the news item, but I, but I didn't know what it was before. So please enlighten us. Oh, well, uh, not much to know. It's, it's uh, one of the most dynamically growing social media platforms that originated in Russia and now is a global company. It's basically a messaging platform. But uh, when they introduced channels, they provided companies, NGOs and individuals with the opportunity to convey information to followers just as a one-sided communication, which the guys behind the website Skepticos.es have decided to use. So well done. And they also launched a very nice photo album that tells the story of the last 30 years of the organization. So lovely stuff. But what is probably much more newsworthy is that their regular award, Lupa Skeptica, you probably remember that, it translates as the Skeptical Magnifying Glass. It has been given out again, this time to virologist Margarita Del Val, who's a researcher at Severo Ochoa Molecular Biology Center, and apparently a tireless disseminator of scientific facts, valid information on COVID, and a, a great help for the organization and the general public in spotting hoaxes and misinformation about COVID-19. So the decision and the announcement was made on the General Assembly of the Association on the 24th of October. So congratulations to Margarita Del Val. Well done and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, go Spanish skeptics. Definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. They've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and somebody who should definitely also keep up his good work is Edzard Ernst. <laughs> yeah. Because... Um, I found a very interesting article of uh, of him about patents on homeopathic products. Ooh. And <laughs> he looked at a patent survey of homeopathic products and processes. And in the study, they looked for um, patents in uh, relation to homeopathy. They found about 174. And that was between 2008 and 2018. And like 24 of those patents were from Russia, 15 from Germany, 11 from the Ukraine, but also others. Like I, I, I'm not definitely not mentioning all the countries because we, <laughs> we don't want to bore you, dear listeners. <laughs> Interesting was also that the majority, 69% of the patent applications were done by independent depositors. Which is also, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. But what's most interesting is usually it's claimed that homeopathy can't, can't be patented um, because they have no commercial interest. Oh, really? Are the homeopaths? Of course not. Of course. Mm -hmm. really? mm -hmm. You can all hear the sa sarcasm here. <laughs> 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 and that means they don't have funds for research and can, can thus not have any clinical trials. Poor, poor people, yeah. Poor things. Mm. Which is interesting if you look at the 17 patents a year they apply to. Mm. Oh, yeah. And Edzard Ernst gave a um, very, <laughs> a very interesting list of patents. For example, car exhaust. <laughs> car exhaust. Which is exactly what it sounds like. Must be very useful against air pollution, by the way. Eclipse totality. Oh, sorry, eclipse totality. Yeah. Total eclipse. Yeah, but also Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> <laughs> but that exists. I mean, okay, that's something tangible. You can take some, some, <laughs> yeah. you know, a little bit of rock from mm -hmm. the from Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, that, that happened yeah. to the Berlin Wall as well. Right. Yeah, that, there is that that exists. Yeah. yeah. Oxygenium, which is oxygen. <laughs> Homeopathic <laughs> oxygen. Yeah. Great. But my absolute favorite is Sol Britannic, which is British sunlight. 
<laughs> that is homeopathic to begin with. You don't have to dilute exactly. that. That doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. That's why well, cool. that was my favorite Very because good. it's like so diluted anyways. It's just like, <laughs> yes, loving it. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, I, I think people would pay for undiluted British sunlight. <laughs> So yeah, for that I really thank Edward Ernst because um, oh, he really summarized it really well. How, where the mm -hmm. crux in the whole matter lies there. <laughs> But it's it's <laughs> fantastic. How do you patent a sugar pill? Because it, even homeopaths admit that if you present them with an anonymous uh, homeopathic pill, they can't tell it apart from another homeopathic pill. It's impossible yeah. mm -hmm. because it's all about magical vibrations embedded in the water that is no longer in the sugar pill. It, it, it's total nonsense. It's probably the process of the production. The shaking. That, that is patented, <laughs> yeah. How they acquire the, the, the sunlight. sunlight, for example, yeah. Yeah, that, that <laughs> is impressive, though. I should tell uh, that. Is, I agree with that. Oh, shit. <laughs> What a world we live in. Yeah. Yeah, talking about weird stuff. <laughs> Ipsos. You know, the, the multinational mm -hmm. market research company that mm -hmm. we, we quite often cite here on the show has conducted yet another interesting survey in 27 countries across the globe with an overall sample size of a little bit short of 19,000 adult individuals. The survey was about people's trust towards news, uh, what their principal sources of news are and how much effort they make to, to make sure their, their sources are trustworthy. And... The results are worth checking out, especially since some European countries show very intriguing results. So let's start with the channels. Somewhat surprisingly, globally, television seems to be the primary source that 74% of respondents use at least three times a week. And it's followed closely by social media, which is not that surprising, probably only that it hasn't climbed up uh, to the first place yet. Yeah, that's what I would expect. Yeah, huh? yeah. 60-odd percent reported the use of web-based news portals or news applications at least three times a week. But radio seems to be in the decline, just as printed press. They are being just wiped out, basically. Although this could easily indicate trust as well. Trustworthiness was a different question. More than eight in ten people said they make sure they consume the news from trustworthy sources. Now, I don't believe that. Well, I call bullshit. Well, that beca that's because they think Fox... That's what they say. They think Fox News is a trustworthy source. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the questions did not include asking them about how they decide whether something is, is trustworthy or not. Hmm. They only asked them if they think about it, if they try to make sure that it's, it's trustworthy. So 82%, that was almost unbelievably high. But when you compare it to how many think that consumers of news are able to tell fake news from real ones, something familiar emerges. 30% believes people are capable of making that distinction. So 82% say they make sure that it is trustworthy, but 30% believe globally that people are actually capable of making that distinction. You mean others. <laughs> so 82% are reporting doing it, but 30% are capable of doing it according to them. So <laughs> what does that remind you of? Yeah, it's, it's like well, a, a little bit of a, a, of a Dunning-Kruger-like thing. Right. Uh, and, and it, and it gets like, you know, even more like that. <laughs> yes. You know, everybody thinks they are above average. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So more on that later. One in seven Brits seems to find it easy to access trustworthy sources, which is higher than the global average. But only one in six does actually regularly check the reliability of the sources in Britain. In Spain, almost half are confident they can spot fake news, but only one in five thinks the average Spaniard is capable of doing the same. Yeah. So this is the Dunning-Kruger Yeah. Full-blown. It's really cool. The European countries with the greatest disparity between how they see their own capability to spot this information and that of the others in their country are Belgium, the Netherlands and Hungary. And interestingly, Hungary is the country with the lowest number of respondents agreeing that other countries target people in their own country with this information. So that was one of the questions, whether you think that other countries target your own with misinformation. I wonder what, uh, wh why that might be, but one of my guesses is that the issue of fake news is swept under the rug 
by our government. But if you think about it, it's really easy to understand. They are the ones who spread the fake news. <laughs> they don't want people spotting that. Have the question been uh, whether other countries or George Soros, for that matter, try to control us politically and economically, the answer would have been a definite yes for like 80% of the, of the respondents. At least that's what I think. But finally, a few more interesting numbers, some of which I couldn't even try to interpret. But when asked about the frequency of making sure the news are coming from a trustworthy source, European countries seem to average out around 40% saying they regularly do that. That's quite low, especially compared to the global average. How some South American countries can double that and reach 70% is a mystery to me. Uh, some of the countries where, well, politically speaking, they are mafia-controlled countries, <laughs> at least some of them. So, interesting. But uh, Great Britain, Sweden and Spain, uh, also are Italy, are the ones where almost 6 in 10 people report doing a regular reliability check on their sources. Mm. But then, so is Russia. So... <laughs> <laughs> the numbers are all over the place it's interesting to see them but no matter how hard they we try a proper interpretation of of the results is, is i i think it's far that seems very very hard far from from possible yeah uh but still interesting and um especially that that dunning dunning kruger going on it's it's really cool yeah <laughs> others are not capable i'm i'm above average says the average <laughs> All right, that has been all the news, and that means that we are about to find out who's been really wrong lately. Right, so you mentioned Hungary just now, and uh, there are disturbing political developments in, in certain Eastern European countries. We all know that. We've, we have Belarus, we have Hungary, we also have, of course, Poland. Yeah. And uh, the latest ongoing tragedy in Poland is the crusade against abortions. And, and that now is combining with one of the other major political scandals there, which is the de facto takeover of the judicial systems by the governing party, which is so perfectly known as PIS, which obviously <laughs> is the apparently a local abbreviation in Polish for law and justice. You see the irony there? <laughs> uh, how is it that parties often put words in their name, which is quite the opposite of what they really are, are about? Anyway, mm, yeah. Okay, like Fides. Now there are puppets that have been put in place by PIS on the Constitutional <laughs> Tribunal, among other places. And the Constitutional Tribunal have now declared even further restrictions on abortions. And the only permissible reason now for having an abortion is either rape, incest or the mother's life being in danger. Not even fetal defects are a valid reason. And of course, never the notion that w women should have any control about over their own bodies. So it's, it's really terrible. This will lead to even more life-threatening illegal abortions and, and misery for everyone because... Unplanned pregnancies will not stop to occur. Mm. So this is absolutely inhumane. And of course, the church there is happy, happy all about this. And so at the same time, they can they just say that we don't have anything with, to do with it. They have been very rightly blamed for being involved in all of this. But now they can just point the finger at the uh, at the law and at the, the, the party and say, it's, it's all political, it's nothing to do with us. But they're really, really happy about this. And it's really, really terrible. It's, uh, it's uh, I would almost say medieval, but that maybe is going too far because, uh, well, I'm sure they did <laughs> abortions in, in the Dark Ages as, as well. But... This is a dark age for, for Poland, if nothing else. Yeah, especially because we have the alternative of safe abortions now. We, <laughs> so We know how to do it. We can do it. It's safe. If we know how to do it yeah. safely. Uh, and it's a human right, I have to say. So it's just like... It, it, it's absolutely. Um, that's right. But I, I think you're quite right in saying that it's going to be going back to um, medieval uh, practices because that means that the unsafe practices will be taken up and that should be avoided by all means and this is just pushing women towards that yeah and for risking their lives this risking their health because all that's available is some kind of an unsafe well, coat uh, hangers practice. 
Yeah. Or, or yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's no reason for this at all, as I can see it. It's either it's mm-hmm. it's religious bigotry, or it's a, a desire to control women, and it is also just the political scoring sheep points with the men. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming in in Poland. So terrible, terrible thing. Well, definitely scoring points with women. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so to wrap this up, for this absolutely horrid development of b- depriving women what actually should be their human rights, as you said, Annika, to decide over your own life and your own body, the stupid piss party lives up to the name and uh, gets today's award for being really wrong and the church gets an dishonorable mention <laughs> yeah well deserved <laughs> well the second time this this on this episode for the church to get a dishonorable mention yeah and i don't think it's the first time that uh, the law and justice party has gotten the really wrong either so. yeah 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 i think so all right well deserved thank you very much pontus and that concludes our show But before we go, obviously, I need to share a quote with you. And this quote comes from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Oh, really? (laughs) I don't think he needs an introduction, but the quote goes, Science helps us before all things in this, that it somewhat lightens the feeling of wonder with which nature fills us. Then, however, as life becomes more and more complex, it creates new facilities for the avoidance of what would do us harm and the promotion of what will do us good. Woo! Go science! (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Typical Goethe quote, because you have to read it like three times to actually understand what he said. (laughs) Especially if you read it in German. (laughs) Well... If there is something that I would really love to uh, be able to understand and read German perfectly is to be able to read Faust Mm. in original. I would love that. But I love it in a Hungarian translation as well. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Goethe. And I'd like to thank both of you. Annika and Pontus for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Please say that you have something to poke the poke for. To poke, okay.